You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio. And this is episode number 498, I think it is, 498. And uh, from now on, I think, well, there's going to be, we're going to be recording number of shows just to make sure that we can kind of keep this up uh, every week. So I'm going to be recording these in advance uh, when these will be going up every Tuesday. So this will be going up whatever the next date is uh, for the next Tuesday one. So just in case anything happens in the news and I'm, it sounds a little, I, I would normally record these on the day, but um, I think this probably works better. Any, um, any, things you would like me to review i still will do things from the media from time to time um there's a richard dawkins one when he was on trigonometry there that i do plan on looking at perhaps in the near future things like that apologetics related material but i'm going to be going through quite a bit on the creeds and confessions probably i don't know how many it's hard to know how many programs but i'm going to be staying on this topic for a while and because i think it's a vital issue for the church now on the last episode of the 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 program kind of laid out creeds and confessions credo creed coming from the word credo which basically i i believe so we state what we believe as a church and we're not having to guess and wonder what our doctrinal standards are every church has a has a creedal standard even if you're listening to this and you say no creed but the bible that's a creed if you have a church, and say, well, we don't have any statement of faith or anything else like that. Even if it's not written anywhere, you still have a credible, or you still have a statement of faith or a creed of some description. You may not write it down, but it will be seen in your practice. For example, you would not, as a Christian church, allow the, whatever the teachers are called from the Jehovah's Witnesses to come over and teach. Why? Because you believe that Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God, is true God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses would reject that, and you would not allow a Jehovah's Witness to teach from a pulpit of any Christian church. So obviously there are, or not obviously, it's not obvious to everybody, there are doctrinal standards and every single church has a creed of some description. It just depends what it is, and it just depends whether they'll write it down or not. Now, if you're not convinced of that, perhaps maybe listen to the previous program. If you are convinced of that and you're here and you're, and perhaps you're Reformed or because it's generally going to be Reformed, not always Reformed, we'll have creeds and confessions, but then the next you're not going to have any strong convictions on the next thing I'm going to say with regards to the swearing of keeping 
of the confession of faith and, and to what level of, for want of a better term, strictness should we have with regards to our vows, whether that's elders, deacons, whoever else. And I'm like, I'm, I'm approaching this from a Presbyterian, a reformed point of view. I believe a biblical point of view, but just to put my cards on the table, that's where I'm coming from. And to understand Presbyterianism, one really needs to largely understand a lot of what has come out of the Scottish Church. Like I'm living in Northern Ireland at the moment, and the the two deno- the two Presbyterian denominations, or, you know, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland or the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, both of them really have their roots going back to Scotland in various ways. So a lot of what's in, in Ulster traces back to, to, to Scotland. And same with the United States. I'm talking about Presbyterianism. There are other Reformed in a adhering to very similar standards, but different standards all the same, at least in terms of their the way they're written and what they're called. The Belgian Confession would be the Confession of Faith of, people, of brothers in Christ, dear Reformed brothers in Christ, who would trace their lineage, really, or the theological background back to the Netherlands, but also like continental reform, some people call it, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really, just to to state, I am coming at this from someone who holds to the Westminster Confession of Faith. However, uh, the principles, I pray, that we are looking at that should really be something that we would adhere to across the board, no matter what convictions we would hold. And we're, since we're thinking about vows, and since we're thinking about swearing of vows, basically promises before Almighty God, which is part of worship, because vows are taken before Almighty God. And there's positive examples of this in the scriptures. There has emerged, not in just recent times, but a kind of unusualness of someone who will insist that in order to take by by a good conscience before Almighty God that you would hold, take the Westminster Confession of Faith, all of it. Every single part of it. Whether that's predestination election or that the Pope is the Antichrist that we'll get into the different places where people usually do differ I was listening to a very good podcast I really enjoyed it just before I mentioned this <laughs> um, and JV Fesco is who is an author I have I really enjoy reading over the years 
And JV Fesco, this was, um, I think this was Credo, the Credo podcast, anyway. I think it was Matthew Barrett. And um, there was a group of them talking, anyway. And this topic of subscription, I don't think they use that terminology, but subscription to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the historic creeds. We're talking about the historic creeds in general. Came up by J.V. Fesco. Now, J.V. Fesco would be someone who would... Um, is he PCA? I'm not sure about that. But anyway, they would... Respectfully, I would say, well, somewhat of a loose adherence to the to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here's what I mean by that. And again, Fesco is someone I... I really think highly of this is not me trying to go after people or anything like that. So this is me really talking about this is to really, for our own selves, for a degree of soul searching that needs to go on in the church, especially the Reformed Church, if we're going to be Reformed in any meaningful sense anymore. And this is out of deep concern things that I've seen about my own walk, things that I've I've wished to sharpen and to grow in. So this is kind of the, the place where I'm coming from. But anyway, J.V. Fasco is talking with a number of other men and they're talking about the importance of the historic creeds and things like that and Nicene Creed and other creeds have come up. And... He was talking about a candidate for the ministry. Was it a candidate for ministry or candidate for ordination, I think it was. And this like candidate for ordination is <laughs> much more serious. And there I think they have some part of the interview process where I'd have to go back and re-listen to this again in case I'm presenting this badly, but where there was exceptions or places where they would not agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith. I remember being asked this question. Uh, in the past as well, which I always found a strange question. And I'll tell you why in a second. But because if I didn't believe the entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I couldn't, in good conscience, ever swear to any oath that would say, you believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith is the confession of your faith. And how could you do it otherwise? If you don't believe, for example, that the Pope is the Antichrist, how can you swear? Unless there's a declaratory act within your church. Fair enough if that's the case. At least you're being honest. It's been declared openly that you don't have to agree with that. I don't agree with putting the declaratory act in there of stating that you don't have to believe the Pope is the Antichrist. I think it's better if people held that again. But... At least people are being strict with what is remaining, for want of a better term. So anyway, this candidate for ordination presents 14 pages of objections or exceptions. I can't remember the exact terminology used. This is G.B. Fesco talking. And I would say to someone, if you don't, Forget the 14 pages. Well, that's a red flag massively. I was just like, what? Why are you even why are you even applying? 
Now, maybe there's one or two areas you struggle with. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm talking now about office holders or somebody you maybe have been elected to be a ruling elder and you struggle with one or two bits of doctrine in the Westminster. Study it out and see if you actually agree with it. Maybe you've never studied. It depends on whether you're... Your denomination still holds to uh, the consanguinity that you can't marry was your uh, deceased. If your wife passes away, you can't marry her sister kind of thing. That's actually in the original Westminster Confession of Faith. I agree with that. So do other people in the past, John, John Murray. Maybe you need to study that out. Maybe you're struggling with it and you need to study it out. And then you, at the end of the process, you study it and go, oh, actually, I agree with that. Well, then you in good conscience can swear to that. Okay. But if you can't, well, you, you, you got a petition for change or something because you can't swear to something you don't believe. That's breaking the third commandment. I'm skipping ahead. I apologize. But uh, we need to be men where our yay is yay and our nay is nay. So anyway, the so J.V. Fasco, a man we think very, very highly of, profited from a lot of his books, by the way. And um, so he mentioned that was a, a problem, and I, I don't think they let the person through for ordination. But I would just ask the question, why does it take 14 pages for someone to say, no, you shouldn't go forward. And I, I, it's probably, I'm, and I apologize if I'm misrepresenting him in any way, shape, or form, but there may be one or two points at the Westminster. You're, you're about to be ordained and installed as a deacon, as a ruling elder, or perhaps the minister. Don't swear before Almighty God to something that you do not believe. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. Don't promise that. Not until you believe that. Now, if you have have that conviction and down the line you change your mind and you have a change of belief and you no longer hold to that article, whatever it is, well, okay, that's different and you may have to resign or something like that. That's, That's something different. Actually, there's a really good teaching by David Silversides, um, who was my minister up until, was it 2018, and when he had to retire, he's with the Lord now. But on Sermon Audio, if you type in, the, I think it's the right use of creeds, it's very good. I was listening to it in preparation for this a few days ago. We have to, ha- and I, I don't even, I, I stress even to use the word strict, you know, a strict adherence to the confession of faith because it's just being honest with ourselves. It's being honest before God. There's nothing fancy here. What I would call subscription to the Westminster confession of faith, that is simpliciter, which is um, unqualified, unequivocal. And another phrase, in total, every single part of it. Because otherwise, we are using the Lord's name in vain. Now, I state that, and do you know what the weird thing is? 
that is seen as strange today in many denominations around the world or even extreme I know of cases where people before ordinations have had question marks over certain parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith and told not to worry about that. Usually the thing that people don't mind if they don't agree with is the the Pope being the Antichrist. Now I know there's more serious... The Pope being the Antichrist is serious though. It is confessional. I do believe it. I do believe it, and I I held to it before I even read the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was actually, I think it was Richard Bennett who brought me across the doctrine, and his videos on it was a few things he did, and it was other people. Before I'd even read the Westminster Confession of Faith, it wasn't like, hmm, Westminster says this, so it's got to be right. No, I I came to that conviction uh, in a different way than some might come across it. And that doctrine has huge importance in our interaction with the Church of Rome. Otherwise, don't be surprised if more and more people end up crossing the Tiber and returning back to Rome. Now, I digress. So, but why is it such a strange thing? Well, are we a generation of our word? Now, I haven't even got into our main point, but... I'm going to be actually in a second looking at a, an article written by Ligon Duncan on this, which, which which was really helpful on this. But is it a case where today our word doesn't mean a whole lot, but we've gotten so used to that? And whether it's a kind of um, a moderatism where we don't want to come across as extreme in religion in terms of our keeping to things, take a nice middle road so that we're not saying, look, look, what we should be seeking, if we, if we promise to do something, that we're actually going to do it. That if we promise that we're going to defend, maintain, and assert the doctrines contained, if you are swearing to this, to the Westminster Confession of Faith, that we're actually going to defend, assert, promote all the things that are called for in the vow in which we are taking before Almighty God. But we've got such a low view of creeds today and vows that this what I'm saying seems absolutely absurd to many people. And you may even be listening to this and struggling with this and thinking, Paul, you're being a bit extreme here. Let's take another example. Before we get into the Westminster Confession of Faith, imagine if you say, well, I'm going to not take an unequivocal view of my marriage vows. What if I take a very loose view of forsaking all others? in my marriage vows. That you don't really have to keep to that. No, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? The results would be catastrophic. But why don't we have the same view? 
when it comes to the confession of faith. And I'm not mentioning any specific confession of faith, but our vows need to be unequivocal, exactly as we state, because do you know what's going to happen over time, right? You know, do you know if you're ever going to the mechanics or um, <laughs> maybe you've had this experience, maybe you haven't, but say, or maybe you have a, a tradesman, you, you want somebody to, you look for a plumber and there's a leak and you try to ring the person and they'll, they'll say, oh, we'll get that done, so-and-so. You know, uh, it'll be done the next day or ring you back the next day. Next day comes, you don't get the phone call back. And after a while, you start noticing this person doesn't do what they say that they promise they will do. So what will you take? What will you do with their promises? Well, you won't really trust them, will you? Because you've had ample evidence that they're not true. And imagine then, okay, you ring another, pick a plumber. I'm not trying to pick on the plumbing plumbing industry or anything, if it's an industry. And the same thing happens again. Well, what does that do for the person's word? And and people then think, well, plumbers are just going to, well, lie. Or not at least not keep their word. That's just by way of example. We've got to be keep people of our word because people are not going to trust us anymore after a while. It's a bad witness. But it's also lying before God. It's it's about honoring God at the end of the day. Now, what if people see this from people in the ministry? People out in the world. People who don't have much contact with the Christian faith. And you know what? There are people who may have been raised in church, not converted, maybe out in the world now, or there may be people who are somewhat informed about what we believe, say, take Presbyterians, and they know certain of the doctrines that we, we say that we hold. What does it say to the world when we clearly don't? When we start acting like other denominations where they know that, at least in profession, we state something different. What does it do to our testimony? Well, it, don't, it waters it down, doesn't it? And Do you ever have this thing, right? I know of people where I don't agree with them. And I may even have a pretty, pretty strong disagreement with them. Uh, even on some things that I, I, I'm very passionate about. For example, I know people who wouldn't agree with me on the uh, on on the use of the Textus Receptus or the authorized version and things like that in terms of bible versions and all that they wouldn't agree with me on that but i know that they're still men of principle they don't profess to agree with me on that but the things that they do profess that they do believe they hold tight to that and and you say well I don't agree with them on that, but at least they're a man of principle. And you grow in respect of that person and of that person's opinion. And you want to listen to that person. A person who doesn't have principles, who will blow whatever way the wind is blowing, 
Well, why would you listen to them? Why would you take anyway? So I guess what I'm saying is you may disagree with somebody. Me, you may even disagree what they're saying. But you know that the person's a person of principle and a person of the word, and you can listen to that. You know that it's got integrity behind it. Now, I'm trying to use these examples to hopefully encourage you to see how important this is regarding to vows. Now, the 22nd chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith also talks about vows, before we get into this article by Ligon Duncan, but paragraph 4 of chapter 22, Unlawful Oaths and Vows, says, An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. If we promise before God to keep something, the, 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 take the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you swear that this is a, this is a doctrine of your faith, you are promising to, that you are swearing this and to keep this not in an equivocal way where you can kind of make every term so elastic that it has any meaning you want it to mean, but it means what it meant as written in the 17th century as it was written. In To borrow a term from another originalist, written in without equivocation or mental reservation. In the plain sense of the word. So if you say, I believe this, the Westminster Confession of Faith to be the, the, do, the to, to be the, I can't remember the exact words to be, um, let's, let's read actually from, let's read from two. This is from the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, 1973. This is at the top of um, Ligon Duncan's article, which is, in academia.edu you can find it there and it's um you can find a lot of good things on academia.edu i think it's academia.edu they have a an app and different things like that at the top of this page he has quoting from i think it's their uh, book of church order that's it's the pca book of church order fifth edition from 1992 it says and this is one of the the vows that they take in the PCA. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the scriptures? And do you further promise that if any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make no... Make no one? Make no... That must be a misspelling, to your presbytery to change, which has taken place in your views since assumption of this ordination vow. Now, do you adopt, receive and adopt the confession of faith? Just take the confession of faith by itself. The, the Scots formula is a lot clearer, but we'll look into that in a second. But we really have to, in the plain and common sense of the word, according to chapter 22, paragraph 4, to swear this. Or put it another way, do you believe what 
the Westminster says. If you don't, don't swear this. Do not swear this. Now, you may find, I'm going to put a little caveat in there. You may find that, oh, I hadn't thought about that one word, and you may have read it in sincerity, and you agreed with it, or whatever. For example, you know, when talks about in chapter, is it chapter two of the Westminster? How God is without body. I think everybody agrees on that, as long as you're not a Mormon, or a Gnostic or something, or mean one of the ancient varieties of that. So without body, God does not have a body, or comma, parts, comma, or passions. Without parts, so divine simplicity, God is not dependent on any outside of himself. He is completely self-sufficient. He is not mixed in any sense of active and passive potentiality or anything like that. He is, he's not made up of any mixture of substance and accidents, uh, anything like that. Which then follows on to, he's without passions. God is love. God is truth. God is wisdom. God is, God is wrath. He doesn't change. He, or, and also, you know, without passions, it's like he doesn't suffer. He doesn't feel pain. He doesn't feel loss. He is not grieved. He's without passions. Now, you may be a bit, maybe not the strongest on that or whatever the case may be. You discover that and you go study it. And then you find, oh, I agree with that. Well, you keep with your vows and to the best of your ability. I'm not saying this to encourage any sloth or anything like that. But I don't think if you disco- if you've discovered part of the Westminster Confession of Faith and you maybe didn't know what it meant before or something like that, and then you discover, oh, do I even know about this? Maybe you need to study it through a bit more. I wouldn't think that's uh, something to resign over. Now, if you study it through and you're like, I don't agree with this at all, okay, that's something different. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm saying to your best your ability and, and be diligent in that. And usually, usually there's a couple of central areas where people may deviate from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The, the, mo- the most common one I've ever come across is the, the, the denial of the Pope as the Antichrist, the Pope of Rome. That's part of chapter 25. And... We, plenty of denominations have not put in the Declaratory Act in that. Okay. That's number one. They, people struggle badly, and I think for a while now, of the, the uh, that God is impassable, that doctrine I was just mentioning, God without passions. If you are somebody who's struggling with that, by the way, because this is, I don't want to say this is an easy doctrine. It's not. But I would recommend Samuel Reinhan's book, God Without Passions, a primer. It's about 100 pages. Read that. If, you, if you're a preacher, please read this. Because um, this, is not, this is not an area we're strong in in the church. So um, I would also recommend 
All That Is In God by uh, James Dolezal. Excellent book. Phenomenal book. There are others, but um, I think those are kind of manageable. About 100, 120 page each books that hopefully introduce you to that part of the confession. So that's another area where a lot of, and I'm just picking, if you want to use that term, uh, on Presbyterian groups here. So there's that. I'm not saying everybody in Presbyterian, no, there's plenty of people who are much more read and knowledgeable on these areas than I am. So I'm not saying everybody, no, there's plenty of people that have kept up on this, but it, there's been a lot of influence by a lot of modern authors that haven't helped in the, in the, in the seeing that God is impassable. So, but I would recommend a lot of reformed Baptists actually have been doing a lot of work in this area. The two names I recommended Samuel Renahan, who wrote that book, Renahan, he's a reformed Baptist based somewhere in California, I think, and also James Dolezal, who's um, he's a Reformed Baptist as well. It seems to be a lot of the work that's been done recently is actually by Baptists. So, um, so praise God for praise God for their contribution in that area. And or even there's even problems as well with regards to the Trinity. And I mentioned Scott Swain's work as a positive, you know, kind of contribution to it, the, the, the Trinity and introduction, I think it was published by Crossway. I'd recommend that if, if you're wondering what I'm talking about and wondering, am I one of those people who's deviated in this area? So I guess what I'm saying, we're, we're really struggling in really fundamental areas today. It's not just little areas. Um, impassibility is a very, very important issue and God does not suffer. Now, Jesus came into this world assumed a human nature and is so that he could suffer. He suffered in his human nature. He never suffered in his divinity. He could not suffer in his divinity. He's just as much God the God as God the Father is. There's no shadow of turning in him at all. He is pure light and in him is no darkness at all. So our God the one true triune God does not lack anything and cannot suffer any loss. And I'm guaranteeing there'll be people listening to this and they'll struggle with this and wonder, hmm, study it out, okay? Especially regardless of what creed or confession you, you swear to. And I would even say, like, it doesn't, you don't have to be a minister or a ruling elder or a deacon or anything to look into this, this... The the primer by Samuel Reina is a good place to start. So there's, in the looseness, the creedal looseness that's emerged over the last, however long it has been, I think this historians could look into that better than I could. It has had consequences far beyond just you don't agree with the Pope and the Antichrist, shall we say. So there's th- those two areas, the very being of God, his essence, his substance, and things like that. That in, in some way God becomes, unbeknownst to the people who 
advocate this view that they are they believe in a god that somehow changes that when he says in in Exodus 3:14 I am that I am the self-existent one basically that is somehow but he becomes subject to change in a lot of modern day understandings of the being of God. So we have to, we have, we have work to do in that area as a church, as a modern day church, we are pretty poor on that. And so that's, that's another area. Another area, a lot of, a lot of denominations may suffer from is six day creationism. What I'm saying is that they don't believe that the days in creation week are six 24 hour days. That's a pretty important part of taking the plain and common sense view. The oath is to be taken in a plain and common sense view of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. Equivocation, mental reservation is needed to believe that it's not 24-hour days in the six days of creation. You see, you're, 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 you're reading into it. modern ways of reading into it, for want of a better term. There are other places, you know, regards to Calvinism and things like that, but I I suppose those are some of the most common areas, especially, look, I I even say, look, there would be people who would be strong Calvinists. They'll, They'll preach a very good gospel, and they are, all intents and purposes, pretty solid preachers, from what you can tell. You know, they, they could preach really well on total depravity, unconditional election, other things, right? And if you listen to them on the topic of Calvinism, you'd be going away pretty impressed, okay? But where would they... they you could be a card-carrying... Calvinist, but still not be creedly faithful. Whether that's the six days of creation, whether that's, we just become a major problem with Calvinists, um, a lot of Calvinists today, modern Calvinists, I mean, now, where they struggle with impassibility, that God is without passions, and also God is without parts. A lot of people are really struggling with this from what I can see. Um, Again, the book I'd recommend on that, to go into flesh that out a little bit more, is James Dolezal's book, All That Is In God. These are the most common things. There's other areas as well. Um, Hardly anybody... And I'm going across dom- denominations now, whether that's OPC, PC, or whoever. Hardly anybody really agrees with. Now, a lot of people will say they believe in the regular principle of worship, but will argue from a normative principle background. And, I, and I've I've seen it. 
where where does um where does the Bible condemn that? That's normative principle, that's not regulative principle. The regulative principle of worship, if if this is new to you, is part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is, if you swear to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the doctrine of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're also swearing to the Westminster Confession of Faith's understanding of the Second Commandment, which says no innovations or nothing that is not commanded is... Anything that's not commanded is forbidden. So if you can't find a positive command in Scripture, it cannot be done. It cannot be done. This is from this is from Ligon Duncan's article Owning the Confession Subscription in the Scottish Presbyterian Tradition. This is quoting from the Church of Scotland in 1711. This is their formula. This is just an example of a formula. Do you sincerely own and believe the whole doctrine contained in the Confession of Faith approved by former General Assemblies of this Church and ratified by law in the year 1690 to be founded upon the Word of God? And and do you acknowledge the same as the confession of your faith? And will you firmly and constantly adhere thereto? And to the the utmost... of your power, assert, maintain, and defend the same. And the purity of worship, as presently practiced in this national church, and asserted in the 15th Act of the General Assembly, 1707. In, in, oh, well, today it would be entitled, intutilated, I suppose entitled, Act against innovations in the worship of God. That's usually another area where I think there's a challenge or difficulty internationally across denominational lines of various different... And I'm being very, very general here. I'm being very general for a reason. Because every look, every denomination, no matter where you go, you're going to have problems. You know, there's, there's none of us perfect and you're going to... <laughs> rightly spot problems maybe in my own approach, maybe even something I've said in this podcast. So anything I'm saying here, I, I do realize my own sh- shortcomings and I'm not trying to come to a person as across as a person who's arrived, but really as a person who's deeply concerned about how we don't, re- we're not striving at least. Generally speaking, yes, I've met some wonderful exceptions to this rule, but we're not, as a reformed world, there are wonderful exceptions, by the way. There are, and I've met wonderful exceptions. They're some of the best fellowship I've ever had as a Christian. It's just wonderful to come across people, but like that. But this seems strange to people that you hold to the entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith without equivocation, in the plain and common sense word of it. And not just that, but every single part of it. And if you don't hold every single part of it, do not accept office in that church. No, I say office because I don't think that a person who's in the pew needs to be able to line up every 
it's unrealistic. And I look, if you if somebody's in the pew and you've gotten to a point where you agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith in simpliciter and in total, which is unequivocal, and in every single part, praise God. And that's a you know and I'm not saying that because the Westminster Confession of Faith is is on the level with scripture. No, it's not, but I believe it contains biblical doctrine which helps and blesses the church when we unify around these issues which i believe is the minimum amount of unity needed for government in the church because how do you govern the church well it's actually in the confession of faith what we believe about these things now these things can be fleshed out a bit more with the directory of church government things like that doctrine are documents that were produced during the Westminster Westminster Assembly. But all that to say, even though me and you, we will not, we have not quite arrived there yet, let's strive toward unequivocal, without any mental reservation, that our promises would be done in sincerity, holding to the entirety of the doctrine of that which we profess to believe. And if we find out down the line we don't hold it, well, then don't hold that office anymore. Now, if you find out, like maybe, again, I, I want to be careful here, if you find out that you didn't know about doctrine X, then you look into doctrine X and you find you actually agree with doctrine X. Well, c- continue on. Praise God. But I'm saying if, if you discover doctrine X, and you find out you really don't agree with it. Okay, that's some, something serious. Or you, you when you did hold, when you did swear that vow, and you know that you hold to doctrine X, and you no longer do. Well, you should let your presbytery know, or something else like that. Okay. But the the great thing about the the Church of Scotland's now, this is historically going back to 1711. The current church, Scotland, is um, not in the best state, shall we say. And if you want to read more about that, Sad Departure by Robert Randall would be a good book to get. That's published by Banner of Truth. And that'll give a good account of where the Church of Scotland is at. And that was a book about why a lot of people left. I think it was around 2008, 2009, around then. Maybe even a bit later than that. But to to swear as an office holder in a Reformed church, in a Presbyterian church, we must keep to the the whole doctrine. Now, I'm going to quote here from Ligon Duncan in this article that he states on this topic of owning the confession, subscription in the Scottish Presbyterian tradition. And I found this article really, really helpful. Ligon Duncan wrote, In discussions of the nature of creedal subscription in conservative American Presbyterian circles today, it is possible to detect the following suppositions and deficiencies which mar the quality of the debate. First, many assume that the controversy over the manner of subscription is strictly recent or an unfamiliar with the historic formulas. And that's not, not the case. They have thought about this before, 
And if you look at chapter 22, you can see that they have. Second, just skipping ahead a little bit now. And a lot of the things, okay, he's speaking from an American point of view, but there are similarities in Northern Ireland, and I'm, and I'm sure there are similarities in Scotland as well, and all the parts around the world. So second, one frequently encounters the idea that unqualified, that's simpliciter, subscription to the, to the confession is the invention of contemporary right-wing extremists. Yeah. Yeah, and look, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. If you believe that you must keep to this in every part, you're going to be seen most likely by a lot of people as a bit extreme. There's just no getting away from that. You're too you're you're just too dogmatic. Duncan writes, great derision is usually heaped upon any suggestion that the confession should be held to as a whole. I struggle to find people. Now, maybe they maybe more people than I realize around me, but that would believe that you keep to the entirety of the confession of faith. One of the most common examples I see time and time again is whether people believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. Probably, in a lot of denominations, yes, you will find people who hold to that, but they're in a minority. And the problem is, what will end up happening is you don't really know what people believe. So at, at least if you have a kind of case, everybody's sworn to the Westminster Confession of Faith, well, everybody believes that, right? No, not not in not not if things currently stand. You're actually half-guessing whether, well, does that person believe that part? Does that people person believe that part? What about this and this? And what will bind them together? What will bind the people who are ruling the church under the authority of Christ, of course, as under shepherds, what will bind them together in their understanding of Scripture? And they all say that they believe the Bible. That's in the Confession of Faith as well, of course, that. And the Bible is the highest authority. But we're all going to have different opinions about what the Bible says at times. So what are we saying we all believe? It's not clear, is it? Because if if you have a situation where everybody believes 95% of the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay, you you still have 5% there left over. And that 5%, what if you've... Another person has a strong conviction in that 5%. And the rest don't agree with you on that. What happens to your conviction? What happens to your conscience issue? What happens to liberty of conscience? Where does it go? Where does it go? It's uh, Ligon Duncan writes, Indeed, not long ago, a colleague glibly announced to a jury of his peers that anyone who made no exceptions in his adherence to the confession was either dishonest or ignorant, unquote. 
And that look, that's a very common view now. And he's just saying the quiet part out loud, I suppose. That everybody, and people don't say it. Because most people aren't even aware of what's in the confession of faith. Much of the time. Or what they're swearing to. Much of the time. Duncan wrote, Perhaps he did not realize that he had just decreed three centuries of Scottish Presbyterians to be liars and fools. There are, in order to swear to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the red flag should not be flashing when somebody says, I've got 14 pages of exceptions, the J.B. Fesco case that I brought up. It should be when you've got, well, I wouldn't say any, I wouldn't, I think it would depend on the nature of the exceptions, but you can't swear to them them unless you've studied those out and you've come to a position where you say, yes, I can swear to it and I don't have any exceptions on that. None, none whatsoever. And you might be listening to this and thinking, Paul, you're a bit extreme. How is this possible? How are we going to get any elders? Well, how are we going to continue Presbyterian government how are you going to continue if you're a baptist take baptist how are you going to continue that see it it actually really doesn't matter what the creedal position it is you won't be able to maintain it if everybody swearing to that doctrinal standard doesn't hold to it because everybody believes that you can have exceptions and it's okay so people might hold 80 90 percent of it but there's always areas where it doesn't matter then when a case, a difficult case comes up and then you hold that confession as something that they say you've agreed to this and then they can turn around to the other person and say, well, yeah, I don't, but I can list off about 10 things you don't believe. Now, this this is not anything new. It's not. Look, I'll give you one example. Man... Many of us have huge respect for, and I still have lots of respect for, you know, John Murray. Okay. And John Murray, from what I remember, he, he, like, he didn't believe in, in the covenant of works. Now, I, I'd have problems with the way he articulated that. However, when I read through it, and I was actually going to do a critique in a college, I discovered, uh, in my opinion, and anyway, at least, in my fallible opinion I think he pretty much holds to it it just doesn't use the terminology but it doesn't come across as holding to all of it I think we need to be careful with that just say oh I disagree with that I think at least with Murray he did hold to it in the doctrine and substance while maybe discarding where the Westminster describes it we need to hold to all of it Because otherwise, you're going to have a problem. We're going to be there. If everybody's promised the same thing, but you don't know what anybody means by that promise. If it's not in the plain and common sense meaning of the term. I, I hope I'm getting this across in an adequate way because... If we're not people of our word before God, 
Is that a reason why there's a lack of power in the pulpit today? Could that be a reason? You you will go throughout church history and you're going to find different people of different convictions, okay? Different backgrounds. I'll admit, a lot of them Presbyterian, you know, especially Scotland, Free Church, and all this. But they come from different backgrounds, godly preachers, and different things. Not all of them holding to the Westminster, okay? But they were sincerely, of course, as we all fall short of the glory of God, we all fail in different ways. But what I'm saying is they all sincerely kept to their word. And when we become men who do not keep our word, what happens? Should we expect continued blessings upon the ministry and our work? Continued peace upon the churches in which we minister to. And look, you might be, and look, I didn't really get into a tiny fraction. I'm gonna be we're gonna be doing more programs on this. You may be sitting in a in a pew, right? You're not an elder yet. I'm not, I'm not giving you this so you can have extra ammo to go after your elders or whoever. This is not my point. Pray for elders to fulfill their vows before God. And say you're not in that position yet. Look, you have to be qualified. You have to be a man. That's part of the qualification. Um, to be a deacon or an elder. You can grow in this and and look through the Westminster Confession of Faith yourself. It'll bless you by studying through these doctrines no matter what happens, whether you become an elder or deacon or not. But when the time comes, if the time comes and your church votes and they may see that you're a godly leader, follows after God and things like that, and then then you're already at a point where you kind of go, you know that you believe the entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So please use this in the the spirit in which it's meant, which is this, that we would apply it to our own lives, realizing we we fall short. But this is a this is a an area we need people in the pews, not yet in leadership, to come to these strong convictions of all that is in the creed. So aim for this, okay? Grow toward this. It'll help you no matter what, even if you never quite arrive at that point. But you you grow in this direction. You come to these strong convictions. And then, Lord willing, in the future, you could be a blessing by God's grace to the church, to your family, to community. Because you come to these realiz- these doctrines which matter. And okay, you could sit down and talk for hours. Why? Why does it matter what what we believe about the Pope being the Antichrist? Well, if the Church says that it believes the Pope is Antichrist, doesn't teach on it. It clearly teaches that it doesn't take 
deception or deceivers seriously. It doesn't matter. We don't have to be men of our word. And then, when the Pope, which we're told is the man of sin sort of perdition, comes out from the bosom of the church, the neos or the, the inner temple of God, declaring himself to be God, do we take his deception as seriously? Do we take the deception of those who are under the sway of Antichrist, who are priests of the Roman Antichrist, you know, in that system, do we take the deception of that system as seriously as we would? Of course not. And it will water down and harm the church. So even a doctrine where we think that that doesn't matter as much, it does. It does matter far more than we realize and would even contemplate. Look, I'm going to have to wrap up there because, again, could be talking about this for hours. This is a this is a topic that I feel passionate about. I think it would bless the church if we did at least. Okay, we say well, we're not quite there yet. We want to work toward it. We want to grow in this direction. It would so bless the church. If you've got any questions, Megiddo Radio at gmail.com. That's M-E-G-I-D-D-O Radio at gmail.com. Lord willing, we'll come back to this next week we're going to be spending quite a bit of time looking at this article and if you want to read ahead uh, just google owning the confession subscription in the scottish presbyterian tradition written by Ligon duncan you can find it on academia.edu this has been paul flynn may god bless you all